awesome to be here, uh, as always. It's great to be with family. Um, and I'm, I'm a son, a, a son of God and a son of this household. Been here for 12 or 13 years. Um, and I've had the awesome privilege of being shaped and molded, discipled, transformed by the living God and by the influence of so many of you here. And so it's, it really, when I say it's awesome to be here, it, it, it really is. Um, and what I have to share this morning, I feel like has been birthed from that place of being a son. And it's humbling to know that where you are today is largely due to someone else's faithfulness, someone else's decision, someone else's sacrifice. And that's the God we walk with. That his sacrifice, his love towards us is why we can be called the children of God. It says, how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we might be called children of God. How great a love. And I'm a child today because of his calling and choosing of me. I would never have known that when a man who ran children's programs for kids that were between 8 and 12 years old would choose to preach the gospel as if it was life or death and present the eternal promise of a relationship with Christ, I had no idea when I said yes to that promise, the enormous impact that that would have on my life. I was born again, born again as a child. And that decision has shaped the direction of my life and continues to shape it. And so coming in here and being part of this family, this household, this community, I've had the privilege of walking with others and of being discipled. And just like it's humbling to know that the eternal and spiritual life that I'm in has come through the sacrifice of another the maturity that's been formed has often come through relationships with others who have chosen to lay down their lives for me and for us as, as a family. And so it really is a privilege to be part of a community um, and to walk with one another. So... Today I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the household of God. And I'll just read this. This is 1 Timothy. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. 1 Timothy 
chapter 3, verses 15, says this, But in case I am delayed, I write to you, so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And Paul saw the church not as a building, not as an institution, not as a place that you go to, but as a household. And I'm wondering this morning, do we see the church of God as a household? Do we live as if this is our household, this is our family? And you know, when I was thinking about this, and this was originally birthed in some of our discipleship discussions, I had this awesome example of two households functioning in completely different ways. The first was what we would call the flat. <laughs> that was its title. Everyone around knew of it. It was just the flat. And it was where a collection of completely different personalities and individuals dwelt. It was a roof over our heads. We had someone whose greatest ambition was to grow the biggest beard possible. Someone who was into bodybuilding, sort of. Jim Buff. A collection of different personalities, cultures, mindsets, life purposes. We were five very different individuals living for five very different purposes, yet under the same roof. Now, is that a household? We were cohabiting, but we were living five very different lives under the same roof. Now, as the church of God, what kind of household are we? Are we a collection of individuals who live different lives, who are pursuing different things, who are intent on different purposes? Or are we a united body of individuals intent and gathering around one purpose, which is Christ? Now I have the privilege of being part of a home, being part of a family. So I have Tess, Kate, Levi, and myself, and we're becoming a family. We don't just cohabit, we're involved in each other's lives. To give you an example, in preparing this message, it's been a bit of a drama, <laughs> and I was sitting on the couch last night and Tess came and sat next to me and she could see that I was a little bit uncertain. And she said, hey, lift up your spirit. I'm here with you. I'm involved 
with you. Now, Tess isn't coming up to preach. <laughs> That's my responsibility. But she was with me because we are of one heart and of one mind. We are intent on one purpose, which is knowing Christ. And we have shaped and molded our lives around the pursuit of knowing him and laying down our lives for our family here. And so she was with me and she is with me. Had a text throughout the week from a sister who said, praying that your words would hit their mark. And a prophecy from a brother who came up, put his arm around me and prayed that there was a quiver on my back and that the words would hit their mark. Isn't that family? Beautiful way. Eh? That's just over the last 24 hours. God is calling us not to be a collection of individuals who meet on a certain day. We're not to be a flat living individual lives. We're to be a, a collective people. Ephesians says we have one purpose, one calling, and it's the body of Christ. We're to be the family of God who support that in each other and with each other. It's awesome, eh? It's awesome. So, Father, I pray that our lives will become intertwined. That the deep, penetrating work of the gospel would separate us from our own individualistic lives and that we would become a people, a collective people, your bride, a people who love you, a people who love each other as, as we love ourselves. Father, I just pray for a grace to perform that work. Father, would your living word do what we cannot do and arrest us, spin us around, open our eyes, give us sight and perspective to see who it is that we're being created to be in you, that we might walk in it. In Jesus' name. So he's calling us, thanks mate, as a collective people, as a corporate body, for a corporate purpose. Now, I've been hearing from Greg that our view of the finish line will determine how we run. So if our purpose is corporate, if our purpose is corporate, then we'll act as a corporate people. If our purpose is individual, we'll act as individuals. So God is calling us as his church to become his bride. 
corporately as a, as a one people. And so the best example that I can think of of, of, of an individualistic purpose is probably within my workplace. Now, I'm probably working the first real job that I've ever had. And so for the first time ever, I have what are called KPIs. <laughs> is it? <laughs> Cena knows obviously what KPIs are. Um, key performance indicators. So my performance is now monitored. My individual outcomes are now monitored. So I've got a target, I've got targets that I have to meet. I have what's called 14 placements a month that I need to get. I won't go into the details of what I actually do. But I've got an individual purpose. Now, we've got a team of about 14 or 15 people around the region, and we all have individual targets. And yet I've never heard talk of a corporate goal. And because we have individual targets, there's such a culture in the workplace that people actually don't help each other out. People hide their good work from one another because if you share, someone else's KPIs or um, score will go up and yours will go down. And so that individual purpose creates a culture of individualism and everyone being out for themselves. Imagine if we had a corporate target, a, a corporate target as a team. What would that provoke? Togetherness, cooperation, unity, being intent on one heart, one goal, one mind. But because we have an individual in goal, we have individualistic behavior. As the church, we have a corporate goal. God is about preparing a bride for his son. That's the goal, that the lamb may receive the reward of his suffering, that the lamb may receive. As the church, we have a corporate goal to be his bride. Now, what that means is that if you grow, I grow. If you're struggling, I'm struggling. It's an enormous thing. And yet the tenor, the culture, the atmosphere of the church today is of individual people pursuing individual goals and receiving individual outcomes. But we have such an opportunity here as the rock, as a people, and as a church to be about the Father's business, which is a corporate one. You know, something I notice in preparing this is that even the way that God sets up judgment is corporate. I had never seen that before. It talks in 1 Corinthians 3, the context is, a, is of a building, God's building work that he's doing. 
And he talks about a foundation being laid and a building work of the people of God being done. And now there's rewards for those who are faithful with what they have and who build according to his pattern, his way, through the work that he's doing. But the, when I think, stop and think about it, the building is us. It's the contribution you make to the whole. It's that you're invested in the people of God. It's not just about your individual performance. It talks about a judgment of the sheep and the goats. It says that in that day he'll come and he'll separate the sheep from the goats. Goats on the left, sheep on the right. And it talks about what you have done unto the least of these, you do unto him. So it's a judgment, not just for what you have done, excuse me, for Christ, but for this heart set, uh, this mindset, this heart for the body that God is looking for. So that corporate goal will provoke corporate together behavior. It's going to read Ephesians 2. So this is Paul, and he says, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He says, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. What an interesting word, the commonwealth. When I think about a commonwealth, I think about the commonwealth of Israel. Uh, sorry, the, the commonwealth of England, sorry. And what that means is that England's king is ultimately the governor of all of these other nations that before coming to Christ, you were separate from being part of the commonwealth, being part of the collective whole, but you're being brought near by the blood of Christ. And so listen to this. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Awesome, eh? Um, being fellow citizens with the saints and of God's household. And so we see in the verse that I read at the beginning in Timothy, it says, I write these things so that you may know how to con- oh, so that one may know how to conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. 
It's the household of God that's the pillar and the support of the truth on the earth. And I've just got a few key points that I'll talk about this morning. Firstly, the household of God live for the things that are unseen and the things that are eternal. This week, Tess, Levi, and myself have been reading through Genesis, and we stumbled across um, the book of Noah. Oh, not sorry, not the book of Noah, the story of Noah. So uh, Levi is starting to preach. He's starting to, to find his voice. So um, if you want to come to one of our Bible studies, you'll certainly hear from him. <laughs> um, but even that, now that I think about it, is something that God has been speaking to us about personally, is about creating a culture in our home of discipleship. And so while the discipleship at the moment is actually between Tess and I, Levi is invited into that corporate environment. So our hope is that naturally he would grow up immersed, engrossed, part of the household of God. So we are reading in Genesis about the story of Noah. Um, And in Hebrews it says this, Hebrews 11. Eleven verse seven. If you're taking notes, it says, "By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith." What a scripture! By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence. He responded. So Noah saw something that was unseen that had such a defining impact on how he lived that his whole life shifted. It talks about Noah previously, and I was struck by the way that he's introduced in the Bible. It says about this boy, Noah, was born. And you know what Noah's name means? It means rest. Interesting, eh? I was like, oh my goodness. It says that he will provide his people rest from the toil of their hands. Wow. The toil of their hands. A couple of chapters back is a chapter about the fall and this separation between God and man and the consequences that man would have to toil the ground for his own food and his own bread by the sweat of his brow. And then two chapters later, you see the gospel breaking forth as a man who stands in the midst of a flowing river and walks upstream against the current when all of humanity and creation is toiling for their bread for the work of their hands in the ground. Here's a man whose name means rest. And yet Noah was the busiest man I've ever observed in the Bible. Seriously. 
So God spoke to him about something that was future. About a future, I was going to say calamity, but really that was part of it. But ultimately, I believe that Noah saw beyond the flood into the eternal purpose of God that he was moving towards. And in reverence for what he had seen, which was unseen to the naked eye, but seen to the man who walked by the Spirit. In reverence for what he could see, his life dramatically altered. And he became a man who would no longer toil for the things of the ground, for the bread that he would eat that would perish, but for the bread that would endure to eternal life. And so he would start to build this ark. And now this, it's such a nice story that sometimes it's easy to, to miss the immensity of this assignment that he was given. This is right at the beginning of creation. The ark was the size of one and a half rugby fields and it had the capacity to hold 250,000 sheep. <laughs> 250,000. And Noah was tasked with being the building manager of this project. Without power tools, without a skill saw, without nails, where were they produced? You see these like photos or you know on Google and it's like perfect weatherboards, <laughs> you know, with like nails put into it. But everything would have had to be from scratch. Illustrates the immensity of labor that this man would have to go through. Yet his labor was directed not at something that was earth bound, but was heavenly and eternal. He is a man who had received the gospel, who had been free from the toil, from toiling the ground, from working for earthly things with the sweat of his brow. And he had been set free to invest into, to labor for by the power and the grace of the spirit within him. Like Paul, it says he labors and strives according to the power that was at work within him. You know what is interesting is that the men who were in the greatest measure of rest were the men of the greatest labor because their power and life source was from above. And so, so, so Noah, this man of rest, was a man of labor. You know, James says, show me your faith and I'll show you my deeds. Faith without deeds is dead. Noah's deeds were a reflection, an indicator of the faith, the sight, the perspective that he had of the eternal goal. And his deeds showed. And so it says in faith, Noah prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. 
What a passage. That word, household, keeps popping up over and over again. By faith, Noah prepared a, a dinghy for himself that he could save himself and get away from his wife and his kids. No, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household and those 250,000 sheep that he could have had if he wanted to. He prepared his faith. He prepared something not for himself, but for his household. And that's what the gospel will do to you. It'll have you preparing an ark for your household. You know, Greg preached a little while ago about cultivating and keeping your garden. It's different language for the same thing. As a church, we're to create an environment for each other where we can encounter Christ, be discipled, be built up in him. You know, this man, Noah, was so free from the priorities of the world. It talks about in the days of Noah, men were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. They were caught up, they were consumed by what life had to offer. And they refused to accept that this man Noah had a sight that was beyond what they could see. You know what fascinates me is that while that was the culture of the world around him, Noah's family, his growing children, were with him. So much of what I see today is probably people will grow up maybe in a Christian household and yet as soon as the opportunity presents itself to go and experiment with these different things, they're off. We call it adolescence and it's normal. But yet Noah, this man who had must have put things in place for the discipleship of his family and they were found with him when the day came. Interesting, eh? As grown adults, even though they hadn't been talked to directly by God, they were being discipled into the things of heaven and the things of eternity. That's my greatest desire for my wife, for my son. As a, as a household, and my greatest desire for you, as my brothers and sisters, we would be discipling one another for and towards this eternal purpose that God has for us. Massive aim. The next point. The household of God live for one another and not just themselves. I was struck by these words of John. And he said this, he said, I have no greater joy than to hear of my children walking in truth. 
I have no greater joy. He doesn't say, I've got no greater joy than when I'm walking in truth. Interesting, eh? That John was in such a posture that his greatest joy was in someone else's growth and not his own. And yet in having that posture, that's the greatest position to be growing himself. Yet he had been separated from the soulish need to seem to be growing. And sometimes I think it's the last drops of self that can hide and trying to be spiritual for the sake of spiritual for ourselves and yet the gospel sets us free from ourselves and enables us to live and lay down our lives for one another. You know, um, the night before our wedding night, I came back to mum and dad's house. My mattress was in the living room with my sleeping bag. <laughs> and there was a tinfoil package placed on my pillow. <laughs> from, <laughs> Ethan, don't give me that grin, mate. <laughs> wasn't a tinny. <laughs> This, this little package waiting for me and I opened it up and then it was a photo book, a booklet from Ross and Nicole with his parents and it started from when Tess was a baby being born in her parents' arms. Then as a child she, there was photos of her a couple of years old playing with a cat starting school growing up, becoming a teenager. And in the front of the book, they wrote this, they said, we give you our precious daughter. We give you our precious daughter. And here's a man and a woman who have raised this beautiful girl their whole life, have invested time energy, effort, love, nurture, discipleship only to give her away. Wow. That's love right there. That you would lay down your life not for what you can receive the time, the investment, the energy was so that she would be built up, not so that she could do anything for them, but for my sake. Powerful, eh? Powerful. I can't open that book without crying anymore. <laughs> because of the demonstration of a love that is heavenly and divine such a selflessness about it and a laying down of one lives, one's life for another and it says this you will know my disciples by the way that they 
love one another. This is us as the church. This is the love that we're to have for one another. No greater love has anyone than this, that a man would lay down his life for his brother. What would it mean to invest into one another, not for our own sakes, but for their sakes and for Christ's sake? The household of God, this is the next point, the household of God makes the Father's desire the highest priority in their lives. Come and have a look at this, John. Excuse me one second. That's better. John chapter 3. Verse 25, therefore there arose a discussion on part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. Interesting, hey? There's a rumor going around town that all of John's disciples have all of a sudden started going and hanging out with Jesus. And the Jews say, are you not concerned that your disciples are now more interested in another teacher? Are more concerned with another person than with you? And John, he says these staggering words. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Powerful. John saw himself as a friend of the bridegroom, as one to lead and guide the people of God to their husband, which was Christ. There's something dangerously wrong when the people of God are more interested and have ears more attentive to the words of one another. More affection towards their wives, their kids than they do towards him. And as a father, my role is not that my wife, or as a husband, my role is not that my wife would come to love me, but to love him. And in that, there's a beautiful love expressed towards one another as we pursue and are unified and united in that same goal. John wasn't concerned about his own reputation, his own ministry, his numbers. He was concerned about the bride. 
and the bridegroom. That's who we are to be. We're to be the friends of the bridegroom who lead one another, whose lives are devoted to each other's pursuit of God and love relationship with him. What a massive call, eh? As the church, the household, the pillar of God. A church that lives this way truly is the pillar of God on the earth. You know, Johnny says, like I read before, I have no greater joy than to see my brothers walking in truth. Interesting that he doesn't say learning about truth, discussing truth, walking in. The truth isn't something to be considered, it's to be walked in. And the, tr- and the church that walk in truth truly are the city on a hill. Where on the earth can you find a love that is so selfless, that's so divine, that's so not self-seeking? That's the household that he's created. So Father, I pray that we would here be your household. We would have a love for one another that's divine. A love that goes beyond ourselves. That we would be so in love with Christ that our lives would be devoted to his good pleasure, to his people becoming their bride. So Father, I just pray this in the powerful and awesome name of Jesus. Amen.